Right, we, we come now to the fifth uh, study in this series that we're doing on, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Very quick recap. We saw in the introduction that the gifts of the Spirit, because they are designed for human experience, they fit human experience. We saw that we as human beings function in the area of thought, word and deed. And we saw that three gifts primarily relate to the area of thought, three relate to the area of word, and three relate to the area of deed. The thought ones, wisdom, knowledge, discernment, the word gift, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy, and the deed gifts, faith, healings, and the working of miracles. And we've seen that. Now what we've done is we've spent most of the time in this series homing in on the word gifts. Now I'm not going to recap what we've said about them, except to remind you the reason why we have spent so much time on them. Tongues, interpretation and prophecy. The reason was because Paul did. Paul brushed over the other gifts very, very quickly, and we're going to do the rest of them tonight in one evening. But he spent a great deal of time on the word gifts, and so therefore we have had to as well. And the reason has been that the word gifts are the springboard into the other gifts. We've seen that when we become free in the word gifts, which don't demand so much faith as the others, that as we begin to move and become free in the word gifts, then faith grows and they become the door through which we walk into the other gifts. Now we've thoroughly covered the word gifts, alright, and tonight we're going to move on and we're just going to finish Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to look at the thought gifts and we're going to look at the deed gifts. <clears throat> so first of all the thought gifts, remember the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge and the discerning of spirits. Now let's dive in, just have your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be darting around all over the place as usual but obviously Paul lists these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and it's the list we're concentrating on. And the first of the thought gifts that we're interested in tonight is the word of wisdom. Now I want you to notice immediately that here we have an overlap. Because it's a word of wisdom. It's another word gift, but the point is it's primarily to do with thought because it's in the area of wisdom. So we get an overlap, but that's no problem. You can't put God in a box. You always find overlaps in what God does. <coughs> but we need to especially home in on this particular gift for a while. And the reason is because it doesn't mean what you think it means. The word of wisdom isn't what you think it is. And that will become clear as we go through it. The Greek word for wisdom, here used, the word of wisdom, the Greek word is Sophia. It's where we get the name Sophia or Sophie from. But we get another English word from it and it's sophistry. Alright? But the Greek word here is Sophia. Now you must understand at the outset what this word does not mean. It does not mean the kind of wisdom whereby you know the best course of action to take. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean knowing the right course of action, the best course of, act, course of action. There's another Greek word for that, phronesis, alright? That means prudence. That means uh, knowing the wisest thing to do. It's practical wisdom. But the word of wisdom here Sophia is not that at all. 
What Sophia means is this. <coughs> it's the insight into the true nature of things, leading on to knowing the thing to say in order to expose and to disarm those who are doing wrong under the guise of them doing right and exposing deception. I'm going to repeat that. That might sound, wow, how did he get that out of the word of wisdom? But don't you worry, we're going to see it very, very clearly in the scriptures. I'll define this gift again and then we'll see it. It's having insight in the true, into the true nature of things and it's being given the right words to say in order to expose and disarm those who are doing wrong under the guise of doing right and to expose and to rebuke deception. Now we're going to see this. This is what wisdom in this context means. This is what the Greek word Sophia means. And we're going to see that it's not human wisdom. All the gifts of the Spirit, they're not what we do, they're what God enables us to do. They're by the supernatural power of God. And this isn't human wisdom, this is the wisdom of God. Go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and find verse 3. Now Paul says this, he says, For though we live in the world... We are not carrying on a worldly war, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now two things, that Greek word there, destroy, it means literally to pull down. And the point about strongholds, they are military things. All right, in the ancient world, an army will get a stronghold. They'd have a kind of a fort or something. And that is what a stronghold was. It was kind of a concentration of military might and strength. And the, illu the illusion that Paul is referring to here is quite simply this. The, the Romans had an awful lot of trouble with pirates. Uh, a lot of their commerce was done via sea. And there was one particular really dodgy run that they had to do, and it was past Cilicia. Now, there was a real scourge in Cilicia because there were a, a, a group of pirates, and they had a fort right up on a cliff in a peninsula out into the sea. And what they would do is that when a Roman boat came along, ships or a fleet or something, all these pirates would come out of the cove, as it were, ransack the ships, and then they'd head back into the peninsula, and then they'd all sort of climb up into their stronghold, and they'd be chucking boulders and things like this down. And the Romans couldn't put a stop to it. That particular part of their sea journeys was always in danger from these pirates, because the pirates of Cilicia had a stronghold on top of the cliff, and the Romans couldn't get to them. Now, what they did with typical Roman in, um, ingenuity, and this was uh, Pompeii, in fact, did this, is that what they did is that they got hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers and they all boated in to the bottom of the cliff where this stronghold was. And what they did is they all climbed up and they got grappling hooks and things like that. And because they had so many men, they actually pulled this stronghold down. They pulled it down the cliff. 
And once they'd done that, the pirates had nowhere to run to, and so that put a stop to the problem. Now, this is the picture that Paul's using here, I think. He's talking about pulling down strongholds. It's, it's a, a point of power that the enemy has, all right? Now, this is what Paul's saying, and in spiritual warfare, we've got to pull down, we've got to destroy the little kind of bases, if you like, that Satan has in various places. Now, when you get a verse like this, Paul's saying, right, we've got to destroy strongholds, we've got to pull them down, you then expect him to list the kind of demons that we're after. You know, we wrestle with demons and we fight demons and stuff like that. Listen to what he says. What are these strongholds? He says, we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now Paul's here talking about our spiritual warfare, but what are the strongholds that Satan has in people's lives that we as believers have got to tell that, tear down? I'll tell you, it's wrong thinking. It's deception. Can you see? It's wrong arguments. Arguments that go against the truth of God's word. It's Every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. It's wrong ideas that go against what the Bible teaches. And he says we're going to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare is largely, not totally, but it's largely in the area of the mind. Satan holds people through wrong thinking. Be they unbelievers or be they Christians. Satan can have power in the lives of Christians. We have the right to be absolutely free of Satan's power. But the point is, if he can deceive us into letting him have it, then he'll get it. <coughs> so can you see, the word of wisdom, what it does, it exposes these wrong ways of thinking which hold people captive. And when the truth exposes that deception, and the person then starts to think right, Satan's power over them is broken. Now then, let's actually have a look at some instances of Jesus using this gift. Remember, what are we saying? It's a gift whereby you are given exactly the right words to disarm and expose people who under the guise of doing right are actually doing wrong. And you expose the satanic deception that they are trying to spread amongst other people. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. <coughs> Matthew's Gospel, and we'll see Jesus using this gift. Matthew chapter 22, firstly, and verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. The Pharisees wanted to trip him up, alright? They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying teacher we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and care for no man for you do not regard the position of men tell us then what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not now notice they start off saying oh Jesus we know you're a good man a little bit of cruel, crawling here, a little bit of bootlicking, all right? Oh, we know you're a good man. Tell us, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Can you see? It's under the guise of a perfectly... Re Someone who was genuinely wanting to be right with God could have said to Jesus, 
you're a good man. Should I pay taxes? That question, that approach, could be quite legitimate from someone whose heart was right. Here, the Pharisees are taking that approach. Very respectful to Jesus verbally, <clears throat> and an honest question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, look at the next verse. But Jesus, aware of their malice, can you see? Here are people spreading evil under the guise of doing good. They've got all the jargon, all the Christian language, haven't they? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I mean, we know that Christians don't talk like that, do they? But Jesus did. He knew exactly what they were up to. Now look what he says to them. Remember, the word of wisdom is to expose people like this, whether they're unbelievers or whether they're true Christians out of fellowship with God, all right, in rebellion against God or whatever. He says, look, show me the money for the tax. And they brought him a coin. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say, Caesar's. Then he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You see, what they were trying to do is they were trying to get Jesus to say either you mustn't pay your taxes to Caesar, in which case the Roman authorities would have had him because the Pharisees wanted him out of the way, all right? Or they wanted him, on the other hand, to say, yes, you must pay your taxes to Caesar, full stop. And then the ordinary Jews would have said, oh, Jesus is a collaborator. Can you see what the Pharisees are trying to do here? This is sheer devilry. Absolutely is. And Jesus, he takes the coin and he says, Who's, whose face is on it? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's absolutely perfect. Can you see? And they don't get out of the situation what they wanted to. They're no closer to tripping Jesus up at all. And it says, when they heard it, they marvels, marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Uh, go over into uh, back into verse tw uh, chapter 21. <coughs> Let's have a look at another one. And in verse 23, this is Jesus. He entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Reminded of someone who told me once I was on his patch. <laughs> Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, look at this. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from, from men? Alright? And they argued with one another and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him then? You know, that I'm the Christ. Uh, but if we say from men, we are afraid of the multitude, for all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now can you see, this is the word of wisdom. It's disarming and exposing those men who under the guise of doing right are in actual fact carrying out evil, hypocritical strategies of their own. Can you see the way that Jesus disarms them? Just go into chapter 22 and in verse 46. When you get home, read from verse 41 because there's yet another example of Jesus using the word of wisdom. But just look at verse 46. 
And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Can you see, the word of wisdom was so... Now, this is referring to people who weren't asking honest questions. Honest questions are great, but these questions, they're not honest, are they? They're hypocrites. Jesus so disarms them that eventually they realise that they're going to get, get nowhere, and so they don't dare to ask him any more questions from that day onwards. Can you see the power of the word of wisdom? Satan moves through the unrepentant sin in people's lives. And remember, these religious people, and this happens through believers as well, Satan moves against people who are being used of God through believers and unbelievers who are out of fellowship with God, believers because there's unrepentant sin in their lives. Satan moves through them against what God is doing, and the word of wisdom puts a stop to it. Stop Satan in his tracks so that he's not able to actually doing it, do it. Now then go to Acts chapter 6, because something that's interesting, the first martyr of the church, the first Christian who died because he was a Christian was Stephen. And what I want to show you, he was murdered because he used the word of wisdom. Now then, Acts chapter 6, verse 9. And, and it says that, that Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, arose and disputed with Stephen. They wanted Stephen to be wrong because what Stephen was saying was offensive to them. It meant they had some repenting to do, alright? So what happens is that they disputed with Stephen because they wanted him to be wrong. Now look at this. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Stephen is using the word of wisdom. He's exposing them for what they were. He's answering every argument that they put forward. And he's answering it with the truth. He's using the word of wisdom. Now look what happens. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they brought him before the council and set up false witnesses. Now then, can you see what's happening here? <coughs> These guys get nowhere with Stephen on the issue of truth. Why? Because what Stephen was saying was right. You can't get anywhere with someone who can demonstrate they're right with, from the Bible. Of course you can't get anywhere with them. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. I mean, sort of that wall over there isn't going to go away because you don't like it. That wall stays. Can you see? Don't matter what you feel about it. And that's the same with truth. It's there. You can't get anywhere with somebody when truth is on their side. And anyway, these guys were totally wrong. They weren't interested in truth. They were interested in getting their own way. They were interested in people saying, Oh, what marvellous people, oh, what marvellous followers of God they are. When in their hearts they were full of bitterness and hypocrisy and every kind of evil, as Jesus said. So they got nowhere on the issue of truth. What happens next? What's the only thing they can do? I'll tell you, they set up the smear campaign, don't they? They instigate witnesses against Stephen. Can you see? They start the rumours and then they bring up false witnesses. 
Can you see? People who are willing to actually tell lies in order to besmirch their names. Okay. Now then, so can you see? And then if you go through into chapter 7, when they were still unable to put a stop to Stephen preaching what he was preaching, eventually they murdered him. Can you see the power of the word of wisdom? All right. The way that you expose hypocrites in what they're saying by the Holy Spirit giving you exactly the right thing to say that exposes them for what they are. When that happens, it's a smear campaign. Read all the way through the Bible. It's the smear campaign. But you can't stop one, someone who is standing for the truth. All right. Now then, <coughs> I've found through the years that this gift has got me into trouble more than any other. Can you see? You are going to be in trouble if you minister this gift. You are going to expose the hypocrisy amongst Christians. You are going to expose the hypocrisy and the deception in the churches. And they're not going to like you for it. Can you see? So therefore, the word of wisdom is an immensely powerful gift because it exposes where Satan is working in the lives of God's people. All right. Now then, I'm wondering, would you like this gift? Would you like it? Just just go to James. Just go to wouldn't it be interesting to find out if you could have it? Alright? The Epistle of James. I've lost the Epistle of James. And find chapter one and verse five. And he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, it's the same word, it's Sophia. Not not phronesis. It's Sophia, alright? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. Now, can you see? You can have this gift. It's there for you. Would you like it? Well, there's one question. Are you willing to lose your friends? Are you willing to have your Christian friends, you know, sort of not want anything to do with you anymore? Can you see what I mean? But this gift, this tremendously powerful gift, is available for all of us. Now, having said that, it must be tested very, very carefully. And the reason that it must be tested so carefully is precisely because of the reaction it gets. The word of wisdom, boy, it gets reaction, alright? It causes trouble. But the reason it's got to be tested so carefully is that any time there's a Ferrari, alright, and bad reaction, can you see, it must be ascertained whether that bad reaction was caused by the word of wisdom or whether it was someone just wanting to cause trouble. Can you see? It's got to be tested very, very carefully. So if you end up having caused an awful lot of trouble through ministering the word of wisdom, well, if it's established that it was through the word of wisdom, you're in the clear, no problem at all. But if you've ended up causing a load of trouble, and upon investigation it's found to be not past the test of the word of wisdom, but just because you wanted to stir it up, then you've got some repenting to do. Can you see what I mean? So we must test it very, very carefully. And so what we've got to do is that we've got to say, right, okay, then how do we test this gift? Because the Bible gives us a specific test for this specific gift because it causes so much trouble it's got a little test all of its own and it's in James remember James was telling them you can all have it you see so therefore it's got to be James who tells them how to test it and if you go to chapter 3 
and find verse 13. And he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Some Christians cause trouble because they've got bitterness, they've got ambition in their hearts. Can you see? They want to get to the top or things like that. If you cause trouble for those motives, that's not the word of wisdom, that's just us causing trouble. But look at this. This wisdom is such as comes down from above. Uh, sorry, this wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Where there is disorder and trouble, because of things like jealousy, selfish ambition, alright, stuff like that, that's not the word of wisdom, that is believers' sins causing division in the body of Christ, okay. But how do we therefore find out what true wisdom is? Well look, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Because there are no ulterior motive. The only motive for it is the truth. The truth of God's word. Then, peaceable. Now, if you've got someone who is well known as to having, uh, say, a temper that very quickly flares, or someone who's well known at being incapable of talking to people without being rude to them, that person had better not start using the word of wisdom until they've got victory in those areas of their lives. Can you see? People who use the word of wisdom are going to be people who are only going to end up in trouble because of their faithfulness to God. You'll find that they're people who, apart from getting in trouble for things like that, they're not in trouble with anyone. They're popular. Can you see? Because the trouble is not being stirred up because of their personality problems. Can you see? They're quite, you know, they're, they're at peace with themselves. They're at peace with God, they're at peace with other people as far as they can be, given that they've got to be faithful to God. So therefore, pure, no ulterior motives, peaceable, coming from someone who isn't known for having a bad temper or just deliberately trying to stir up all the trouble that he can. And these people don't like stirring up trouble. They won't, they won't fear doing it, but they don't want to do it. They won't fear doing it though. And then it says gentle, gentle. The word wisdom, now the reason it makes people so angry is because it exposes their hypocrisy, not because you're rude to them. Can you see? Anyone, anyone can make someone angry if you handle them roughly. Do you see what I mean? The word of wisdom doesn't work like that. When the word of wisdom is being used, it I mean people may be absolutely hopping mad, but the point is the person who is being used, they're not hopping mad. Can you see? They're at peace, they're calm, they're rejoicing in the Lord. It's absolutely no problem. Can you see? This is the way to test whether or not something is the word of wisdom. Those people are going to be gentle. They're not going to walk all over you. They're not going to be trying to humiliate anyone. They're just speaking the truth and then however people want to react, that's up to them. And then it says, open to reason. Tremendously important. Being open to reason means that someone's correctable. It means you can go up to them and you say, look, why have you said this? Do you have any evidence for it? Can you show me from the word of God that what you're saying is right? And if someone's ministering the word of wisdom, they won't be offended, you won't get, oh, what do you think you're doing challenging me? You won't get anything like that. They'll say, of course, let's sit down and let's do this. 
Can you see? They'll be open to reason. Can you see how vital that is? But when you get people sort of like, you, you know, sort of dogmatic, dogma, you can't talk to them. Can you see? They, they believe what they believe, what they believe, what they believe. And if you don't go along with it, they'll walk all over you. That is not the word of wisdom. Can you see how important it is to have this test? To discern between the true wisdom that comes from God and the satanic counterfeit wisdom. And then it says, and uh, full of mercy. Full of mercy. You see, if you're used in the word of wisdom to expose people's sins, you want only one thing, to bring them to repentance so you can be in fellowship with them. What you will not do is be burying people. Do you see what I mean? And some Christians, they do this. They can acknowledge that there's something wrong in somebody's life and then, well, slay them, right, boom, that's it. Can you see? There's no way in for repentance. All right? The true gift of wisdom is always full of mercy and good fruits. Good fruits. Do you remember Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them? Now, we judge people by their success. Dangerous. Dangerous. What was the fruit Jesus was talking about? The fruit of the Spirit. It's character of life. You test someone and their ministry by the type of life they lead. You know, not because they're good at something, not because they got the gift of the gap or, or something like that. You test it by the fruit of their life. And then also without uncertainty or insincerity. So can you see, it really is important to test this gift to make sure that that is what is being used. But can you see the difference? <coughs> between someone ministering the word of wisdom, which causes an awful lot of trouble, and a troublemaker. And you can always test them. You test them according to these verses we've just read. And it's dead easy, because they'll either fit into one, or they'll fit into the other. And then you know whether that person is being used by God, or whether they are just a troublemaker, someone who likes to be the centre of attention. There's one other thing I've got to say about this. <coughs> this... And this is really, really the, the big thing today in the church. The compromising diplomacy in the church today, which seeks to keep peace and unity between believers at any cost, is not wisdom. It's rank stupidity. Because if you're going to go for unity on anything other than the basis of the truth of God's word, I'll tell you, you're in fellowship with, with Satan. Can you see? If you're going to say truth doesn't matter, then you're opening yourself to every deceptive spirit flying around in the stratosphere. Can you see the stupidity of it? And this kind of, you know, sort of like, uh, the, you know, the compromise, the ecumenical movement, trying to get everyone, oh, well, what matters is unity. doesn't matter what the Bible says. That is rank stupidity. It's not wisdom at all. In fact, it is hypocritical sycophancy. <coughs> because the people who are doing it are doing it because what matters to them isn't Jesus and what Jesus thinks, the Word of God. What matters to them is being thought to be a good Christian and being popular and being respected in their ministry. Can you see? They are too proud and they are too cowardly to run the risk of fellow believers thinking that they're funny or that they're fanatic. Can you see? It's pure pride and hypocrisy. That is not wisdom. Wisdom does not keep the peace at any price. Not in any way at all. True wisdom... <coughs> is always based on enforcing the truth of the Word of God. So, therefore, don't think that the wisdom of God 
is the same as, you know, it's like these people who if they realise uh, sort of maybe that, that there's going to be a disagreement about something come up, the first thing they want to do is to step in and disarm it before it happens. Big mistake. Now, I'm not talking about two Christians who want to go for their throats. That's not what I'm talking about. But these people always want to bury debate on the Word of God. Can you see? Because if you're going to debate the Word of God, you've eventually got to say, look, you were wrong, and I'm going to show you it from the Scripture. That's what the churches don't want. They don't want that, because if they have that, people are going to have to repent all. And that isn't the in thing today. Can you see? So don't mistake the wrong kind of wisdom, the worldly wisdom, the compromise, and the sycophancy. Don't mistake that in any way at all for the word of wisdom. Worldly wisdom in the churches today brings people together regardless of what they believe. The truth is buried for the sake of Christian unity. The word of wisdom does precisely the opposite. The word of wisdom exposes deception and brings it to the surface. That is exactly what the word of wisdom is for. See, I told you it wasn't what you thought it was, didn't I? Okay, let's move on to the next one, the word of knowledge. This one is very, very straightforward. The word of knowledge is quite simply when you end up knowing something that you haven't learned. We acquire knowledge humanly, acquisitionally. Can you see, we learn it through experiences. Now then, therefore, the word of knowledge is when you know something, but you haven't acquired that knowledge through learning, it's a completely supernatural thing. All right. You see, God is omniscient. It means that he knows everything. Everything there is to know, past, present and future, is known by God. Now, the word of knowledge is when God shares a little bit of his omniscience with you in a particular moment. Can you see that? So that you suddenly know something that there's no possible way that you could have known in a particular circumstance. Go to John's Gospel in chapter 1. Let's just have a quick little dippy to see Jesus using the old word of knowledge. John chapter 1 and verse 43. And you remember, uh, sort of, Jesus saw um, Nathanael standing <coughs> under the fig tree. Start at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Here's he. Jesus knew all about Nathanael by word of knowledge before... He'd ever met him. Jesus saw Philip go up to Nathaniel while Nathaniel was standing under the tree. It was a word of knowledge. And Jesus knew that Nathaniel was a sinner but not a hypocrite. It's a big difference. Guile is deceit. The secret of being a, a faithful to believe, you know, a faithful follower of Jesus isn't not being a sinner, because boy, you are and so am I. The secret of being a faithful uh, follower of Jesus is having no guile. That when sin is indicated in your life, you won't kid yourself or other people, you'll come clean. All right? That's what Jesus saw in Nathaniel. All right? And then he said, he brought, um, and uh, then Nathaniel said, How do you know me? And then Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? Jesus said, Oh, it's a word of knowledge, it's nothing, nothing. 
you know, you wait till you see, you, you ain't seen nothing yet, mate, can you see? But the point is here is Jesus using the word of knowledge. And often in the Gospels you read that he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. You know, when you get, you know, when you've got a crowd of people, Jesus does something, and he said that Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Now it's important to understand it's not mind reading. Some people think that because Jesus was God he could read people's minds. Well, if he'd wanted to, he could have done, but he didn't want to. It was Jesus, in all times like that, using the word of knowledge. Now, there's something important here that you've got to understand. All the miracles and signs that Jesus worked in his life were not due to him using his own inherent power as God. They were him using the gifts of the Spirit, just like you and I do. You see, Jesus could have used his own inherent power of God if he wanted to, because he was God. But you see, God became a man, and when God does something, he does it properly. So when Jesus became a man, he became an ordinary man. Ordinary men can't work miracles. Therefore, Jesus laid his own inherent, his own innate supernatural power aside as God, and he, in his life, simply used the gifts of the Spirit in exactly the same way that you and I are supposed to. The same with his healings. When Jesus healed someone, it wasn't actually Jesus himself healing them in his own power. He could have done, but he laid that aside, and he became an ordinary man. It was him ministering the gift of healing. Can you see? Very important to realise that all Jesus' signs and wonders that he worked was simply him using the gifts of the Spirit, the same as the Bible says that you and I can. And it's the same here with the word of knowledge. Now there are a variety of applications for something like the word of knowledge. Obviously, I mean, I've even known of people who lost something. You know, <coughs> and uh, they can't find it. And they phone someone up and they said, oh, I've lost something. Will you pray about it? And then the person knows where it is. They have a word of knowledge. 101 applications. You don't need me to go into them. But it's like I can, I can remember just sort of one example from my own experience. Once I, I was hitching uh, somewhere and this, this guy stopped and he gave me a lift. And I got in the car, and as I got in the car, I knew that he was homosexual. He was married, he had children, but I knew that he was homosexual. It was destroying his life, his life, all right? We were able to talk, okay? Now, he didn't become a believer that day, but when he dropped me off, before I got out of the car, we prayed together. Now, I don't know whether he's saved yet, but it was certainly a step along the way, if he wants to. Now, that's a word of knowledge. And there's a very definite reason why I've picked that example from my own experience. It's because I think it's the only one there is. You know, I'm not very hot on the word of knowledge. I think that's the only time God's ever used me in it. But can you see? There it is, the word of knowledge. But something else that's important as well, never give words of knowledge the benefit of the doubt. Now, what do I mean by that? Say someone has a word of knowledge for you, if it doesn't fit, if it doesn't relate, it's the word of knowledge that's wrong. Can you see? We're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And say you get a word of knowledge for someone, all right, and you go to them and say, God's given me a word of knowledge for you, all right, and you tell them what it is, and they look at you, and they scratch their head, and they say, that don't make any sense to me at all, you see. Now, in a situation like that, don't give that gift the benefit of the doubt. All it means is you're wrong. Don't try and convince yourself that you were wrong, but they're refusing to come clean and they're hardening their hearts or things like that. Especially if you believe you have a word of knowledge about a sin in somebody's life, and don't expect that a lot, but it can happen every now and then. But if you go to them and say, I've got a word of knowledge, you've got this sin in your life, if the person says, no, I haven't, believe them. Can you see? Don't keep believing your word of knowledge and call them a liar. 
don't give words of knowledge the benefit of the doubt. You'll then write up a gum tree if you do. All right. Now then, discerning of spirits. Now this is another one that needs needs a little bit of attention here. This is tremendously important and much misunderstood. The Greek word discerning here in discerning of spirits is diakresis. And what it means is a distinguishing or a clear discrimination. And in actual fact, it comes from the Greek verb which means to judge. All right. So in a sense, <coughs> discernment is a judging. It's to judge something. Those of you who think the Bible says that we must never judge each other, and those of you who as soon as someone says something that you don't like, say, oh, you're judging me. Or as soon as somebody picks up on a practice your church is doing that's unscriptural, say, oh, you're judging us. I'm sorry, the gift of discernment isn't going to be for you. It means to judge. Paul told us to judge all things. Diacresis. To make a judgment, to make a distinguishing or a clear discrimination about something. Now then, it's interesting. I'm going to tell you an English word that we get from this Greek word. Do you want to know what it is? Critic. We get our word critic from this Greek word to judge, all right? I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to really get this into you, because it's one of the things that Christians are not, and they should be. You must be critical, all right? There's a big thing in the churches, you must never be critical. You must never say anything against anything. I'm going to tell you that is satanic rot, and I'm going to show you that. In the 1930s, the German population were not critical. The result of that was one Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. Can you see? We have today a sort of like men in the Church of God, all right, in churches where they rule the members of the church with a rod of iron controlling nearly every area of their lives. Shall I tell you how Christians get into situations like that where they're dominated by elders? It's because they're not critical. I'm going to tell you what someone who isn't critical actually is. It's gullible. We have got to be critical. Now, I'm not talking about being critical in the wrong way. There are many things where it can be good or bad. I'm not talking about one of these people that you will find something to disagree with even if it kills you. Alright? We're not talking about that. That is criticism in a sinful way. That's not what we're talking about, alright? But what we must understand is this, alright? The Holy Spirit is quite literally a critical spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is critical. He's a critical spirit. Now, there are people in churches, they speak out against what's happening in their church on the basis it's unscriptural. On the basis that it's unscriptural. And they're told, shut up, you've got a critical spirit. Can you see? What they're doing is right. You are right to challenge your churches if they're not being scriptural. If your challenge isn't met, get out of them. You can't stay in churches where the leadership aren't willing to submit to the scripture. You're just asking for trouble, if you do. But can you see, we've got to be critical about things and discernment is part of it. Now, with this thing about discernment or being a critic of spirits or spirituality, 
What you've got to understand is that spirit, or that which is spiritual, can come from three separate sources. Spirit can be one of the Holy Spirit. It can be two of demonic spirits. Or it can be three, and this is often the one that gets out, left out, from the human spirit. And in the gift of discernment, <coughs> whether you're in what you might call a counselling situation, I mean, I hate that word counselling, but a situation like that, or whether you're trying to deal with a, a problem that's, that's blown up in a church that you have something to do with, the point is that you've got to judge, you've got to find out from God, you've got to discern what the source of what's going on, what the source of the problem actually is. And whether it's a demon, now this could be of a church or in someone's individual life, whether it's a demon, whether it's their human spirit, all right, or whether something is of the Holy Spirit. And I've known Christians really, really concerned, really troubled, really troubled at something that's happening to one of their friends in the faith. Really troubled, you know, they've come to, oh, I'm wor we're worried about him. Oh, we just sense there's something wrong. And I've said to them, what they're going through is the Holy Spirit. And then you can show them from the Bible. Can you see? You've got to find out what spirit is actually working. And uh, it's like, for instance, once a church that I was preaching at, uh, apparently, I didn't know this till after the service, um, but um, we were sort of like sitting <coughs> towards the back. And there was a woman down the front who we knew, and Belinda could see a demon sitting round her neck, choking her. Belinda saw it. I didn't. But as it happened afterwards, this woman came up to us. I mean, I didn't know what Blinder was seeing then. And she had a problem that was clearly demonic, all right, there's no doubt. I mean, Blinder tends to discern visually, all right. I don't. It's just an inner knowing with me, all right. But we prayed with this woman, and we keep the demon out. But what was interesting is that when we were telling the demon to go, the demon didn't say anything, but it kept shaking her head like, and she lost absolute control of her head. Because the de you know, and the picture Blinda had was it sitting on her neck, source of whatever problem you're dealing with, to find out what spirit, as it were, the problem is coming from. The Holy Spirit, yeah, because some, some Christians, when the Holy Spirit does things, they, they think he's a problem. I'm not kidding. A lot of Christians think the Holy Spirit's a problem. You ask an Anglican. <laughs> or to find out whether it's a demonic spirit or to whether to find out it's just uh, someone's sinful nature all right the human spirit all right but also not just in, in sort of problems that people have individually but also you've got to discern the source behind teaching and behind actions can you see what i mean that, I mean, sort of like in the church, there are certain things going on, actions, and there are certain teachings going out, and you've got to discern the source of those actions and those teachings. You've got to find out whether it's of God, or whether it's in fact a satanic deception, or whether it's just someone who's up a gum tree in his own human spirit and just wants to impose it on other people. And of course, the way that you do test is always, always by the Word of God. Go to Hebrews. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And if you find verse 12. And it says, for the word of God, the Bible, the word of God <coughs> is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That means sorting out which what is of man and what is of God, you see. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. The point about comparing it to joints and marrow is that in your body your joints are dead but the marrow in them is alive. Can you see the life isn't in your bones, it's in the marrow in the bones. There's no life in the human sinful nature, there's only life in the human spirit energised by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says the word of God, it divides between them, it sorts out the wheat from the chaff. And it says and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning. What does that word discerning mean? Criticising. The word of God is the critic on everything that happens. So with all actions and teachings in the church today, you must discern them in the Holy Spirit. All right. And discernment is what I think of as being sort of like the Christians, it's their spiritual early warning system. It's smelling a rat. I mean, people with a ministry of discernment, they're, they're spiritual bloodhounds. They're patrolling the kingdom of God. They're on the lookout for satanic intrusion. All right. Um, <clears throat> it's like also within the context of fellowship. Leaders need to be able to discern if a potential troublemaker has come amongst you. Someone who you discern isn't right in their heart before God and that Satan may be using in the future to cause division in the body of Christ. But there is something here that is vitally important. Underline this in your mind. If you ever discern something wrong in somebody, all right, that discernment must be tr proved true by ensuing events. Can you see? That discernment that you've got must be proved true by ensuing events. Can you see? Because your discernment might be wrong. This is quite topical at the moment, uh, sort of like we've got sort of someone on the scene at the moment and they listened to my voice on a tape and they discerned that I'm not of God. Can you see? Now, discernment has got to be accountable, by which I mean you cannot just discern someone in a vacuum. If you do that, any of us could look at someone, oh, I don't like them, or oh, I discern there's something wrong with them. Can you see? That's ridiculous. If you have true discernment about somebody, that thing that you've discerned will become evident in them, and it will be clear to everyone. Can you see the point? We dare not, we, we have no right to just go around discerning people or discerning things. It has all the time got to be backed up with evidence and it's got to be backed up by the veracity of the Word of God. Can you see? Tremendously important. So discernment is there to protect us from satanic infiltration. It's there to protect us from the people through whom Satan is going to infiltrate. But it must never, never just be a case of, oh, we've discerned him or her, he's, he or she is out. Never, never, never. If someone is discerned truly, then the Holy Spirit will force a reaction in that person's life which will demonstrate that what you discerned is true. Can you see? Vitally important that. Otherwise, as I say, anyone can go around saying they discern anyone or anything without having to give any solid reasons whatsoever. And that, of course, is absolutely lunatic. 
Go to 1 John 4, because while we're on this gift of discernment, we can actually now turn to a verse uh, which some Christians don't understand. 1 John 4, verse 1 to 3. <coughs> he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, I've actually read books where this verse, the explanation for this verse is that you have to test your spirit. Alright? Particularly in regards to tongues. How can we find out if your tongues is of God? And what these people do, and I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding, I've read it in books. They get you to pray in tongues. While you're talking in tongues, they address the Spirit and ask it if it believes that Jesus has come in the flesh. If it's the Holy Spirit, it says yes. If it's a demon, it says no. Oh, groan, I'm not joking. I actually read this. I mean, do you remember we established when we were doing the gift of tongues that it's not divine ventriloquism? Holy Spirit doesn't speak in tongues, you do. This isn't a test for you finding out if your spirit is of God or not. Got nothing to do with that whatsoever. What John is dealing with, he says, for false prophets have gone out into the world. In the early church, they didn't have the completed New Testament scriptures. All right? Now, it's talking about human spirits, the spirit of a man in ministry. Can you see? And how was the early church to find out whether these men were of God or not? It was to find out if they believed that Jesus became a man flesh, alright? Because one of the early heresies in the church was Gnosticism, and it crept through saying Jesus didn't really become a man, he only looked like it. And that was a satanic false teaching. Yet people were going around using all the Christian language, rather like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons do, and the church were thinking they were genuine Christians. And John's right, says, look, fine, ask them if Jesus became a man physically, and then you'll know whether they're true believers or not. So it's a test from believers who are coming through. Uh, like you talk to Mormons, JWs, they do not believe that Jesus is God himself. They do not believe that, that God himself came down into the flesh. That's the test to find out whether someone's a believer or not. Now there's something else as well. Because when you get demonic influence, because we're talking about discerning of spirits, Whenever you get demonic influence working in the lives of believers, it will always issue and result in actions that, against, that are against biblical morality, or it will issue in teaching that is unscriptural. This is a sure way to spot where evil spirits are working in the lives of unbelievers. You'll either find actions which are against the Bible, or you'll find teaching that goes against the Bible, alright? And often you'll find a mixture of the two. For instance, remember the children of God, when there was that movement of the Holy Spirit amongst the hippies in the States in the 60s, one of the offshoots in this country was called the Children of God, and it was a genuine Christian church. However, eventually, because the leaders went up the spout, it actually ended up being immoral and occult. Can you see? Immorality came in, and false teaching came in as well. Now, where there's demonic activity, to whatever degree, it will always show itself in some particular way. <coughs> Look, we've got to understand this. Everything must be tested by the Bible. Satan is interested in deceiving 
people, especially deceiving Christians. And there are deceiving spirits. Remember, Paul warned in the last day they will go out seducing spirits. Alright? Now then, Satan wants to deceive believers. Alright? Through the activity of deceiving spirits. We must learn how to discern their presence and what to do about them. I'm going to say this, it won't be popular, but we've got to understand it. It is the power of evil spirits, evil, deceptive spirits, which are behind Anglicanism, which are behind Catholicism, which are behind denominationalism, which are behind all the isms. Can you see, wherever you get non-conformity, to the morality of the Word of God, and you've only got to look at the Anglicans, refusing to discipline, practicing homosexuals, refusing to discipline, practicing homosexuals, alright? You will see that there will be unbiblical morality, or going against what the Bible teaches, and you will find false teaching. And for one of the most serious heresies that has remained within the body of Christ is the idea of priesthood that some men are priests. We are all priests, and to have a clergy laity divide is a heresy, and it's done untold damage. Evil spirits got that going. Can you see denominationalism of every kind is the result of these deceptive spirits, and we must discern. Now, look, all you've got to do is to look at the bondage that Christians get in who are into these setups. All you've got to do is to see how hard it is for them to break free even though they can see from the Word of God how wrong it all is. Can you see what I mean? You've got to bung in here like, for instance, the house churches that practice shepherding and the very heavy submission. Alright. That also is the result of the activity of evil spirits. And the believers cannot break free of it because there's a demonic hold over their minds. Can you see? And they need prayer and ministry in order to break away. It's not enough for them to see it from the Word of God. That should be enough, but they need more than that, because they've been under the influence of demonic spirits, often for years and years and years. And you'll find that otherwise sensible men and women, when it comes to talking about their churches, they're totally irrational. I mean, the other day, we got a letter, this is to do with holy water, alright, and it was a guy who wrote a letter to us trying to justify the use of holy water for getting demons out of people, alright? Now, this guy is a perfectly likeable and otherwise highly intelligent man. You should have read this letter trying to justify the use of holy water to get demons out of people. Can you see? You might as well be a flat earther and try and write a thesis proving that the earth is flat. And otherwise sensible people get into this blind irrationality that is always a sign that they are under the influence of deceiving spirits. Okay, they're the thought lists, the thought gifts. Now very, very quickly go through the deed ones. These won't take long at all. Faith, gifts of healing and working of miracles. <clears throat> First of all, faith, the gift of faith. Now, this isn't saving faith, all right? All believers have saving faith all the time, all right, we're saved. It's not talking about that. The gift of faith is talking about an quite exceptional supernatural endowment of faith. Uh, when David <coughs> went out to face Goliath, 
that was the gift of faith. I think you can understand that, can't you? That wasn't ordinary faith. Uh, that was the gift of faith. When Gideon went, uh, went against the Philistine army with a handful of men, that was the gift of faith. The gift of faith is what I call the real head-on-the-chopping-block stuff. Can you see? I mean, most of us are in situations where if we don't keep in faith, what difference does it make? But with the gift of faith, boy, you are out there and your head is on the block. Can you see? You'd better be right. Can you see? And this is what the gift of faith is. Elijah on Mount Carmel, do you remember challenging the prophets of Baal? He said, you set up your altar, I'll set up mine, and whoever's God sends fire down, then he's the true God. Mate, would you like to get in a situation like that where the honour of God depended on your faith to call fire down from heaven? That was the gift of faith, alright. Uh, I mean, other examples, I mean, they're not all as dramatic as that, but for instance, living by faith, financially, that's what I do, that's a, a, an example of the gift of faith, alright. If you don't have the gift of faith, you couldn't do it, because you'd die of a heart attack and you'd be grey, because you'd be worrying so much, alright. However, I do want to emphasise, I'm talking about people who live by faith. I'm not talking about people who live by faith, prayer letters, hints and constant collections. That's not living by faith. I'm talking about people whose income is because they pray, and that's it. That's all they do. Can you see? That's an example of the gift of faith. But other examples, I'm sure we'll find this in our own fellowship here. Uh, say you've got a fellowship, and boy, we need this. Who needs musicians? I mean, here, you know, sort of like we, we need guitarists, drummer, trumpets, you name it, we need it. I mean, other fellowships have blooming orchestras. The Lord wants us to have that. He's not going to leave us out. Now, we need musicians, for example. Now, that might mean that one or two of you, or three or four, that you think, suddenly, wow, you've got the faith for that. And you know that, wow, we're going to have it. Now, you've got a gift of faith for something specific. You go off and you pray that into being for the rest of us. Can you see? That is God giving you a gift of faith to pray something through. It could be exactly the same. Uh, sort of say someone comes here and, uh, you know, sort of like uh, a wife whose husband isn't converted. And she says, oh, you know, we must pray for my husband. That's right, we're all praying for it. But then one or two of you think, wow, got him. And you say, no problem, you, you leave this one to me and Jesus, because we're going to thrash this out, he's in, alright? Now that person then battles that through in prayer, because they know that he's going to be saved. That is another example of the gift of faith, can you see? And don't worry about it, if there's something that, that, that you need to be praying for, and you really can't believe it, you go to other people. Don't worry, don't feel you've got to do all your own believing, Friends say, we're in fellowship with each other. We pull our faith. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit, he'll kind of give people gifts of faith for particular things that we need in prayer, and they will battle it through. So, okay, there you go, the deed gifts. The gifts of healing. Notice uh, here that we're talking about gifts, not ministries. There is a difference. We're talking tonight about the gift of healing, not the ministry of healing. It's like, for instance, in the word gifts, we dealt with the gift of prophecy, but that's different from prophets. We're not dealing with ministries in this course, we're dealing with gifts. And this is the one-off gift of healing that any one of us can use at any time that God wants uh, us to do that. But notice the plural, gifts of healing. Now then, I wonder why that is. Well, if you read through the Bible and think, right, what were the ways that people got ministry for healing, alright? I'll go through, and th this is a very short list, alright? Mostly taken from Jesus and the early church. The laying on of hands, the anointing with oil, handkerchiefs, clothes, shadows, 
spitting, sticking fingers in ears, the last two Jesus did. Alright, he spat on the ground and made spittle, you know, with the clay, or he yeah. stuck his finger in people's ears who were deaf. Now, can you see, there's, uh, by the way, didn't find holy water in there, sorry about that, but can you see that a multiplicity of ways of ministering healing? Now, the point is this, there are no techniques. Now, there are some churches, they, I mean, they've read in the Acts of the Apostles that God was moving so powerfully that if people got hold of an apostle's handkerchief, they got healed. Now, the reason that happened was that for them, at that moment, to get hold of that handkerchief, that was their act of faith and they were healed. It was spontaneous, all right? So some churches, they read this, and do you know what they will do? Well, for a very small price, plus postage and packing, they will send you an anointed prayer handkerchief. And if you hold it on whatever part of your body that needs healing, you will be healed. Now, can you see the mistake? That is to totally misunderstand the point. There are no techniques. It's as the Spirit leads at any particular time. As soon as you get into techniques, you're into superstition, you're into occultism. Can you see? As soon as you think that there's something about handkerchiefs, or that if a handkerchief gets blessed, it's infused with... Or it's like the holy water thing. A priest blesses it, the, the water is infused with the power of God because of the prayers of the church. <coughs> that is occult superstition. Can you see? We're seeing here the various ways that the Holy Spirit enabled people to come through to healing. And there are loads and loads of different ways, no techniques. Remember something we said in an earlier talk with the gift of healing, that the gift of healing is for the person who needs the healing. The person who ministers it is just passing it on. Can you see? So if you're sick and I lay hands on you, well, it better not be me, because if you've got a cold tonight and I lay hands on you, you'll have flu tomorrow. I mean, you know what me and healing are like. But for instance, if you were ill and I laid hands on you and you were healed, all right, you got the gift of healing, I just passed it on. Can you see? Right, the working of miracles, all right? Now, again, we're talking about the one-off gift. Any of us can be used in this. We're not talking about the ministry of working of miracles. That's entirely different, all right? But when it comes to, you know, sort of miracles, loads and loads of instances in the Bible. I mean, you hardly need me to go through them, so I won't. There's one thing I want to say about miracles in regards to healing, because this is a teaching that goes out. And <clears throat> that what some people say is that in regards to the gifts of healing and the working of miracles, that if someone is healed instantly, that that in fact is a miracle. A gift of healing is when someone gets better gradually. Can you see the difference? So they say the gift of healing will make you better, but not instantly. If someone is healed instantly, then that is in fact the working of miracles, not the gift of healing. Now I think I know why that argument came up. It's because... Uh, healing, the healing ministry has been so unsuccessful in this country, and I mean, we, we say it is here as well, God's got so much unbelief to deal with us, but the healing ministry has been so unsuccessful, that people have tended to say, oh well it is working, uh, people only get healed instantly when it's a miracle. Now you see, the point is, that if you come here, alright, and you've got a cold, and we lay hands on you, 
and then four days later you're saying, oh, I'm better, praise the Lord, that was a gift of healing. The point is, if you hadn't had prayer, and if we hadn't laid hands on you, uh, an average cold goes away in four days anyway. Can you see how stupid this is? And in the Bible, healing is always instantaneous. Now, if we've got to start off with slow, gradual stuff, that's fine by me. We'll start with that, and then we'll go for, you know, we'll push it up, no problem. But th this idea that, that healing is gradual, but immediate healing is a miracle, is in actual fact wrong. Uh, I mean, where you might get something that you call an actual healing is, uh, sorry, uh, a miracle is raising from the dead. That's a miracle. And I'll tell you why. People who are dead aren't ill. They're dead, mum. Right? They're not ill, so it's no use praying for their healing. They don't need healing. They need to have their spirit return to their body supernaturally and God raise them from the dead, you see. So, um, therefore, healing is going to be for people who are alive. But raising from the dead, that is a miracle as opposed to healing. All right. Now, one thing that we do need to know, particularly about, you know, and this applies to healings and miracles as well, is that we must understand that the only Christians who can expect to be used in these gifts are Christians who do not need to see miracles. It's tremendously important. If you need to see miracles in order to follow the Lord, you're not ready to minister gifts like healing and miracles. The reason being, when you get Christians who need to see signs and wonders, that is sheer unbelief. Can you see what I mean? If I never saw another miracle, that wouldn't change how I feel about Jesus. That wouldn't change the truth that Jesus is alive, the truth of the Word of God. So you must understand that. It's only when we get beyond needing for our own faith to see these things, that that is when we're starting to come into the faith of the Lord, and then He'll be able to use us. You see, the thing is that people can want gifts and ministries to feed their own insecurity. That is not what gifts and ministries are for. Gifts and ministries flow out of the faith of Jesus in us. They don't flow out of our own insecurity and needing to see God work signs and wonders and stuff like that. That would be unbelief and not faith at all. Okay, we're winding up now. We've seen the gifts falling into these three areas. We've seen thoughts. We've done that tonight. We've done the word gifts in great detail, and we've done deed as well tonight. Just to sort of sum up, just go to John. Go to John's Gospel and find John 14. <coughs> and see how Jesus taught about this in his teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think this is rather lovely. First of all, let's think of the thought gifts, all right? Because wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. These are to do with mental perception, alright? Can you see, they are thought gifts. Now in John 14, verse 16, look what it is that, that Jesus says. John 14, verse 16, and he says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. And the key to mental perception is truth. When someone does not perceive reality as it is, that person is no longer mentally healthy. Can you see? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. 
And also in Corinthians, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Jesus wants to share his mental perception <coughs> with us. And through the coming of the Holy Spirit, therefore, when we're baptised in the Holy Spirit, the thought gifts are made available because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Go to John 16 now. Let's have a look at the word gifts. John 16 and verse 12. <coughs> Jesus said, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You see this emphasis on truth, 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 truth. That is the emphasis in the Bible. Jesus is the truth. He said he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak... You see, word gives, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it. This will do with speaking, declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You can see it's speech. And the word gifts are what? The, the main way that the Holy Spirit declares anything to us is through the word of God. But the word gifts are one way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to us what God wants to say. And then go back into John 14 and the deed gifts. And verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now what's Jesus talking about there? The deed gifts. And he says, because I'm going to go to the Father, and because he went to the Father, the church was baptised in the Spirit, he says, because I've gone to the Father, you will be able to do these things as well. Why? Because the deed gifts of the Spirit are available to us. So can you see, when we're baptised in the Spirit, these gifts are made available to us to use as the Lord leads us to and as long as we are open. And that last bit, as long as we are open, brings us on to what we must turn to next time. Because next time, we're going to look at the hindrances to ministering the gifts. We're going to say, wow, with all this available to us, why are we doing so badly? And let's be honest, we are, so am I. We are not open obviously, to the gifts of the Spirit, as Jesus wants us to be. Next week we're going to see why <coughs> the things that Satan uses to prevent us from being open, and when we discover the things in us that are hindering us from ministering the gifts, do you know what we can do? We can put them right, and we can start ministering the gifts. So it's next week that it starts to get really exciting. We'll finish there.